0: Paul has written to this church in Corinth made up of very real Christians with very real problems. And uh, this is the last in this little section within the letter about, uh, that, that kind of centers on food, meat, sacrificed to idols. And we've seen a number of things having to do with that how it ought not to be a stumbling block for weaker Christians, Paul last week gave an example of himself, how he gave up his freedoms in order to serve others, in order to promote the gospel. Uh, But here we come to a place where Paul takes a firm stance about uh, a particular aspect of eating this meat. And so we'll see that, but let's read the text and then we'll dive in. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless with pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, Stronger than he? Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that it is your word, that it is without error, that you have spoken it by your Holy Spirit, that you carried along the Apostle Paul as he wrote these things down, that we might be taught that your Spirit might speak your truth to your people. And so we ask now that you would help us, help us to learn, help us to hear clearly, to think clearly, help me to speak clearly. Help us all to understand what it is that you are saying, that we might please you in the way we respond. We pray you will do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. It was in the summer of 2002 that Susan and I moved first to the state of Indiana, a place that Susan would gladly tell you was north of the places that she had told God she was willing to live because we crossed the sweet tea line, really. You just say tea south of the Ohio and you get sweet tea. You just say tea north of the Ohio and you seem just to get whatever that other stuff is. But we moved to Marion where I was going to serve in youth ministry. And when we moved to Indiana, I saw things that I had never seen before being from Tennessee. I'd honestly never seen a soybean field before. I'd never seen snow in October or in May. And I had never in my entire life seen a Wesleyan church. I didn't even know what that was. But as we lived there, and I went to various youth ministry things, I began to get to know some of the Wesleyan youth pastors in town, and got to, you know, made friends with a man named Matt, and Matt told me what he, his biggest problem with Baptists. Not immediately, you understand, we were friends by then, but he wanted me to know what his biggest problem was, and his biggest problem actually centered on four words— Now, if you maybe grew up, you're my age or so, and you grew up in a Baptist church, or maybe you've been around Baptist churches for a while, you've likely heard these four words. When we understand them correctly, they actually give great comfort to the soul. When we understand them wrongly, they're very dangerous. Those four words are once saved, always saved. Now, is it true that when God saves a person, they are saved, that they will never be lost, that He will not fail to bring them home? Absolutely that's true. Nothing can snatch us from the hand of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. But often when people say those words… In the background seems to be a line of thought that because there's been some kind of spiritual experience, some moving week at youth camp or tears at a church service or some meaningful week of vacation Bible school when they were a child or they went through a baptismal ceremony or they prayed a particular kind of prayer, that because of that, that's it. You're in. Nothing else matters. Once saved, always saved. But friends, that's actually a kind of, that's a a false kind of assurance. Do you know the Bible actually never gives us that kind of assurance based on one event in our lives that we can pinpoint, one time, one special moment. When the Bible wants to assure us of salvation, it never says look back. It never says look in the rearview mirror. It actually just says look in the mirror. But it seems to be this kind of presuming isn't just a problem today. And it isn't just a problem with Baptists. Seems to be the kind of problem that Paul aims at for the Corinthians. You see, they take pride in their spiritual position. These Corinthians, they are sure of themselves. They see no reason, for example, why they, why they can't go into the, the temple of an idol, to Apollo's temple or Aphrodite's temple or, you know, the temple that's labeled to the pantheon, to all the gods, and participate in the feast there, which were actually acts of worship. Actually, because, after all, I mean, idols, idols aren't real gods anyway. So this is no big deal. We're strong. We're secure. We're free to eat the meat. We're free not to eat the meat. But actually, Paul confronts this. He confronts this kind of pride. He tells them that you can't... You basically, that you can't assume that all is well with your soul just because you had some kind of spiritual experience or because you've enjoyed the blessing of God in one way or another. And he points to the Old Testament Israelites to as a warning against this kind of pride. And what I think he wants to drive home here is that we ought to learn from the failures of the past so we won't repeat them. Learn from the failures of the past so we won't repeat them. So first, learn from the failures of the past. In particular, Paul wants them to learn from the Israelites, these Israelites who were rescued from Egypt and who traveled through the wilderness, Paul says their history was actually intended for us, as examples for us. Look at verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Instruction doesn't just mean that we'll get the dates and the facts and the figures right. The word instruction there is the same word that Paul uses when he tells... Parents to raise their fathers to seek to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's a corrective in the instruction, there's a warning in the instruction. That's why this was written down. We're to learn from it. Well, what are we to see? Well, it becomes very apparent as soon as you start reading the chapter that we're to see that all enjoyed the blessings of God. All of them did. Did you notice all the alls in verses 1 to 4? Let me read it again, emphasizing them. Our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They all shared these same amazing experiences. They were all under the cloud. You remember the pillar of cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire by night. It it was a signal of God's presence with them, of God's guidance for them, of God's protection through the wilderness. All passed through the sea. You remember that, right? Moses stands and... God splits the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground, and not a single one of them fails to get across. And then the sea closes up on the Egyptian army. They were all baptized into Moses, which can be confusing because we think of different things, but this is figurative language because Moses was a man whose very character, whose very role was meant to point forward to the Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit, when we become Christians, the Spirit baptizes us into Christ. We belong to Him. In in a similar kind of way, these Israelites were baptized into Moses. They, They followed His lead. He was their mediator. He was the means by which they were led, by which they were rescued from Egypt. They ate the same spiritual, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. It's wonderful as they're going through the desert, through the wilderness. God provides for them, doesn't He? Six days a week He provides manna and on the sixth day He provides double so they don't have to work on the Sabbath. And He provides water for them. These are all amazing experiences. These same people actually were in Egypt when all of those plagues hit. They all saw the power of God. They all benefited from the power of God, getting them out of slavery, getting them through the sea, sustaining them day by day. All of the Israelites had all these experiences, enjoyed all the blessings as they all escaped Israel Egypt and all wandered through the wilderness. But... Most did not please God. Now that's quite a statement, isn't it? You think most, like 51%? No. All but two Caleb and Joshua. Most did not please God. Most didn't make it. Most were overthrown. Most fell short. Most were lost. Jesus says, Broad is the gate and the path that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And why did most of these folks not please God? Because they didn't trust Him, because they didn't obey Him, because they weren't devoted to Him, because they didn't persevere. That's what Paul actually talks about at the end of chapter 9. He says he doesn't want to be disqualified. He, doesn't want, he wants to run the race and exercise discipline and discipline his body. And he wants to do all of those things So that he's not disqualified, not meaning disqualified from preaching the gospel, but disqualified from the gospel itself. He doesn't say all that in order to intimate that one can lose the genuine salvation that God gives us. What he does is he writes that to intimate that we must persevere. And that's exactly what didn't happen with the Israelites they're like those seeds, you know. Jesus talks about these seeds that are cast and some of them immediately spring up and things choke them out or immediately spring up and they have no root. They all enjoyed the blessings of God. But most did not please God. Notice what they did, though. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as, an example, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did the problem did not begin with doing evil the problem began with desiring evil now these desires come out in a number of ways as we will see but everything begins with desiring I just wanna say for just a moment that in our Christian culture today The Christian culture of today would very much like to separate desire from doing. Like you may desire something. You may desire what is opposed to God's will. You may desire, desire, desire. As long as you don't do. But the Bible says otherwise. Jesus says otherwise. Is it enough to not commit adultery? To not do? No. If you lust, it's like you've already done it. Is it enough not to pick up a any kind of anything and murder your neighbor? Is that that enough? Well, according to Jesus, the one who hates his brother in his heart is liable. It's not just the doing that matters. It's the desiring that matters. The very desire for evil is evil. And it comes out in a number of ways. It comes out in idolatry. Verse 7 Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that quote is from Exodus 32. If you don't remember what happens there, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, and the ink isn't even dry on the Ten Commandments, and the people are at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf so that they can worship. Because they don't want to wait. They don't want to do things the way that God wants them done. They want to do things the way they do. They've seen other nations. They saw Egypt make different gods out of things. We can do that too. Evil desire which came out as idolatry. It also comes out as sexual immorality, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, Paul's talked about different kinds of sexual immorality within this letter so far. Here, it's a reference to the fact that God had told His people not to intermarry with other nations. Not because they're other nations, but because of the gods of those other nations, because that would lead their heart astray, because of the false gods that these other nations worship. And in Numbers chapter 25, do you know what the Israelites do? They intermarry with Moabite women. And the Moabite women say, you know what we should really do, sweetie, on our honeymoon? We should go to my God's temple. Let's do that. Can we just go to my place instead of your place for worship? And the Israelites are just dumb. I mean, they're just dumb. Sure. And they just go right after these gods. Because the desire wasn't first and foremost on God. It was on these women. Now, you may be a single person. You may be wondering whether you're going to get married. You may be thinking about marriage. Let me just tell you, the first desire must be to please God. Oh, I know, I know he's not a Christian. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Buddhist, but he's a very good man, and he's good to me. It would be immorality, you know, to be unequally yoked. First desire is for God. So it comes out in idolatry and sexual immorality. Then it comes out in testing God. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Notice now, I'm just going to pause for just a second. That's the second time Christ's name was mentioned with regard to the Old Testament. Did you notice that? In verse 4, Christ was the rock from which they drank. Verse 9, they put Christ to the test. This is actually a very... It's brilliant by Paul. It does two things. One, it testifies to the deity of Christ and to the fact that before He was ever born, the Son of God existed. But secondly, it connects the Corinthians to those Old Testament Israelites just by using the name of Christ there. This isn't some distant thing. This isn't some way back there, them them kind of thing. He wants them to know this is very relevant. But he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, the idea of putting God to the test is essentially seeing how far you can push the limits. It's like being on the highway and wondering, how many miles per hour over the speed limit can I go? before I will see blue lights in my rearview mirror. It's like the couple who are dating or, or, or are engaged and wondering how much physical intimacy is permissible, how far can we push the physical envelope before we're really into some bad territory. It's testing. It's every day of life for a two-year-old, right? Testing. And what happens is in Numbers 21, the people of God test the Lord. They test God. They test Christ. They basically look God in the face and say, this food that you're giving us is no good. It's worthless. And you're not giving us enough water. They're pushing, pushing, And at that time, God sends serpents in response to their sin. And when they're bitten, they die. Now, He provides a way of escape, praise the Lord. But the point here is not the way of escape. Like, this same incident is brought up in John chapter 3, and the point there is that God provides a way of escape for all who looked, you know, to the bronze serpent that that Moses made, who all who look to Christ in faith will be saved. And that is gloriously true. The point here is, these people who had seen all these things, experienced all these wonderful things from God's hand, they shook their finger in God's face and said, what you're doing for us is not good enough. They tested Him. And then the last thing is that they grumbled. Look at verse 10, not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, I have to be honest, this is not the easiest thing because when you read the account of the Israelites in the wilderness, they grumble so often that it is really hard to know exactly which time Paul is talking about here. I mean, they grumble about not having enough food and water. They grumble about the leaders that God sets over them. They grumble about the fact that God even brought them out of Egypt they grumble early and they grumble often they wake up grumbling they go to bed grumbling and this destroyer we we don't have that language in the Old Testament but it would just refers to all of the repercussions that come because of the grumbling because of that kind of rebellion because those evil desires how is grumbling an expression of evil desire because when i grumble against god it's because i want what i want not what you are giving me what you are doing is not good enough for me god you serve me now friends that's an evil desire So all of these ways that the evil desires come out, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, grumbling, all of them are rooted in that same desire, that evil desire which is greater than any desire to please God. And what are we to learn? Well, what we should really take away there is that spiritual experiences and blessings from God, as wonderful as they are, are no guarantee of a relationship with God. And just let that sink in. The fact that you prayed that prayer, however many years ago, the fact that you went through the waters of baptism, these singular events are not now the guarantee that you belong to Jesus. According to the Bible, there is a twofold way of assurance. One is objective Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. That is the ground of our assurance if we're believing in Him. But the second is subjective. Not, can you tell me about when that evangelist came to your church? But can you tell me? Are you trusting Jesus as your only hope right now? Are you walking by faith in him right now? Not did you sprint out of the gate, but are you still running? That's how I always ran long-distance races in, in middle school, you know? You're supposed to run the mile, and I wanted to feel good, so I would sprint out of the gate. I'd feel great. Until about an eighth of a mile was done. <laughs> and then just. Phew. The Christian life is called the Christian life because it is life. It is not the Christian moment, it is the Christian life. It does begin gloriously at that that moment, and maybe you remember that moment and praise God for that moment, but that moment is not the guarantee. Are you still running? Do you still have your eyes on Jesus? Is He still the object of your faith? Is He the one that you're seeking to please? Is He the one that you're after? Does your heart still sing with, the, with maybe even greater fervor now than it did when you first sang it, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe? I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with the parents of adult children And these and parents, some of these parents are clinging to those kinds of moments in their children's life. Clinging to that baptism, clinging to that VBS week, clinging to that past church activity. Even though now, when it comes to Christianity and the Christian faith, their children are nowhere to be found. They're either denying God altogether or simply denying Him in the way that they live. And it is truly heartbreaking whether your child is still in your home or moved out on their own. It is truly heartbreaking to see your children turn away from the things of the Lord. But is it possible that rather than praying that they come back to Jesus. That we need to start praying they simply come to Jesus. And actually this whole warning from the past is good for all of you kiddos. All of you, whether you're in high school, you're in middle school, you're in elementary school, It doesn't matter where you are, what age you are. The fact is, is that I know most, if not all of you, and I can say that in your life, whether you recognize it or not, you enjoy the blessings of God. Having parents and grandparents who love Jesus, who want to teach you what it means to follow Jesus, though imperfectly they are sinners. And yet they want to follow Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus, and they humbly confess their sin and all of these things. And you have Sunday school teachers, and you have youth leaders, and you have pastors, all who are teaching you and seeking to encourage you. And if you're in a Christian school, your Christian teachers are encouraging you too. But be warned just because you got all that good stuff, and it is good stuff, doesn't mean you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you're automatically in. That's the warning. We can't presume on God's kindness toward us. We cannot assume God's approval simply because we enjoy God's blessing, simply because we've had spiritual experiences. That is the lesson to learn from the past. But that's not all that Paul says. He says, learn from the failures of the past so that, secondly, you won't repeat the failures of the past. Don't repeat the failures of the past. That's why he's brought this up. If you look at verse 12, you'll see the very first word is, Therefore, in other words, based on everything I've told you about what happened to these Israelites, here's what you need to know. Here's how you need to respond. Here's what you need to do. And there are actually three things here. The first is heed the warning. Heed the warning. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, these Corinthians believe they're strong and wise and spiritual. And in later chapters, we see they love putting their giftedness on display in public places. It seems like they're on pretty solid ground. But Paul says, if you've come to the conclusion that you are immovable, that that you've got it, that you can't possibly fail, you can't possibly fall, that's when a fall is closer than you think. pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall see that was the israelites mistake they thought i mean they'd seen it all look at look at everything god's done for us isn't that great we're in all enjoyed but most fell short Heed the warning. And, while, and so he's saying, heed the warning, Corinthians. And really, through the Spirit, even today, he looks at us and says, heed the warning, Gray Road. Heed the warning, anyone who thinks that you stand, anyone who has come to the conclusion that I am completely immovable, I am completely invincible, I am completely free of the possibility of falling. The most dangerous conclusion you can come to. I would venture a guess that all these public Christian figures who have fallen in recent years, I just would venture a guess that somewhere in their heart and mind that kind of thing creeps in. Heed the warning. But honestly, don't be paralyzed by the warning because we also need to hear the encouragement. Heed the warning and hear the encouragement. Now, really, there are two bits of encouragement here. One bit of encouragement about temptation itself and one bit about the Lord. So about the temptation, the first part of verse 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's nothing unique about our experience of temptation. Let me say that again. Because most of us are convinced... Lots of things are unique about my experience of temptation. Ain't nobody been tested like I've been tested. But Paul says, there's nothing unique about your temptation. These Corinthians, the temptation he's driving at, is the temptation to go to the the temples of idols and eat as part of their worship so that they can stay in good standing with society. And he's telling them, That's not a unique test. It's actually similar to the man who's tempted to dive into pornography. It's actually similar to the woman who wants to lie on her time card at work because she needs the money. It's actually similar to the student who's tempted to cheat on a test to get a better GPA it's more similar than different to the parent who wants to who who takes some kind of strange joy in exploding at their kids in anger to gain control to exert power now all those circumstances are different but the test is actually the same do i trust god do i believe that pleasing god is better than sin. Will I obey God? Those kinds of questions lie at the heart of every test, every temptation. And you know why that's encouraging? Because what it means is that whatever it is you're facing, whatever temptation regularly enters into your life... It is not some kind of unique, impossible situation that nobody else could ever understand. This is actually why the writer of the Hebrews can say that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus didn't have the internet. How can you say he was tempted in the same way that I am? Because the questions that underlie every temptation, every test are the same. Will I trust God? Do I treasure God more than I treasure sin? Will I obey Him? And at every turn, Jesus answered those questions faithfully. Every turn, He answered those questions the same way. Yes, I trust the Lord. Yes, God is better than sin. Yes, I will obey Him. That's encouraging for us. What is it that you're walking through? What is it that you're tempted to believe, tempted to do? What, how are you tempted to respond to whatever situation you know is coming this week? What conversations have you played out in your head like you'd really like to have it with that person this week and put them in their place? There's nothing unique about any of it. There's no temptation that isn't common to man. The story is different, but the heart is the same. You see? That's encouraging. It means you're not alone. We're all in this together. We all face the same things. The second bit of the encouragement is about the Lord. Second half of that verse says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it." So, in essence, Paul is saying God is not like that gym teacher that just has their clipboard to see if you can do all the things in the presidential fitness test, you know. They've got their glasses down on the end of their nose and they're marking off whether you can do everything and whether you can pass the test. God is not like that. He is not sitting in heaven trying to You know, check all the boxes and see what you do. He's he's not saying that. He's saying that actually God is more like a personal trainer than that gym teacher. He's right there. He's prepared to help, He's there to make sure that you can succeed. He will not allow any temptation to be more than you are able to bear as you trust in Him, as you pray, as you rely on His power. In fact, it says he provides the way of escape. That language is like a narrow pass between a great mountain range. And when you're at the head of that trail, you cannot see it all. All you know is that this goes through there. And if I stay on this way, I will get through there. There. And Paul says that God provides that way of escape, a way through. Now, please understand, this is not a way of escaping temptation itself. Like there's some magical way that God has where you will never be tested again. You will never bump up into a situation again where your faith will be tested. That is not what he's saying at all. But he's saying there is a way not of escaping the temptation itself, but escaping the fall. Escaping the sin, escaping the failure. It's the way of faith. It's the way of obedience. It's the way of trusting Him. It's the way of treasuring Christ more than sin. It's the way of loving God more than self. It's the way of desiring God rather than evil. That's the way of escape. There's one way through. And you can endure all of the pressure that society puts on you, all of the pressure that your workplace puts on you, all of the pressure that your family puts on you, all of the places you feel pressure to compromise the faith, to go a different direction, to just take a little bit off, just a little bit of compromise. You can endure all of that pressure faithfully because God is faithful. That is encouraging because it means I can endure. Look, (laughs) J, J. Adams said the Christian can't say can't. When it comes to choosing the way of escape over choosing sin, the Christian can't say can't. I can't resist this. I can't. Hold out. I can't not give in. I just can't. It's just too much. The pressure's too much. It's overwhelming. You don't know what'll happen if I actually don't sin, the kind of consequences that will come. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my friends. I'll lose my place, whatever it is. So I, I really can't. And Paul's saying you really can The spirit that empowered Jesus to walk that way of escape his entire life. To pass every test. To endure it all without sin. That same spirit lives within you. Empowering you. Strengthening you. To say no when you ought to say no. And to say yes when you ought to say yes. That's encouraging. Hear that encouragement, friends. You're not alone. And the Lord is faithful. Boy, don't we all need to know that? As we walk through the various things in life, we're not alone. The Lord is with us. Heed the warning. Hear the encouragement. And finally, run. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Run, run from it. Now, there are, different, there are different ways that Paul has talked about eating meat sacrificed to idols, okay? And it's in the next paragraph, but, but we covered it a couple of weeks ago. If you go to somebody's house and they put meat down in front of you and they don't say anything, you don't even have to ask. Just eat it. It doesn't matter. If they set it down in front of you and they say, now, this meat was sacrificed to idols. He says, don't touch it. This is all in the next paragraph. I'm just not going to read it. Not for your own conscience' sake, but for their conscience. But here, he says, don't touch it at all in this circumstance, in the temple of idols. It's like the difference between going to your Hindu friend's house and eating a vegetarian meal, and going to the Hindu temple up on German Church Road and eating a vegetarian meal that has first been offered to their gods and said to be blessed by their gods. One is fine and the other one is unthinkable. You can't participate in the worship of demons. That's what Paul is trying to drive home when it comes to those eating in temples don't even think to eating in temples don't even think about it. You have a spot at the table of the Lord with bread that speaks of the body that was sacrificed for you. With, with a cup that speaks of the blood that was shed for you. Behind that table lies your redemption, your salvation, your Savior, your Lord. But behind the table at that temple lies demons. Yeah, Yes. Idols are nothing, okay? Idols are nothing. They are not real gods. But what is behind the worship of an idol? Demons, Paul says. That's what's in the background. You can't straddle the fence. You can't have it both ways. You have to choose. It's either the table of the Lord or the table of demons. And so he says, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Look, it's like, you don't, you don't need to think about this. You don't need to make this an item on your prayer list. You don't need to pray about whether you need to go to the temple of idols. You don't need to seek counsel about whether you need to sin. You don't, you don't need to deliberate about whether you're going to hang with demons. You don't have to do that. Run. 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 Don't walk, run. Heed the warning, hear the encouragement, and run. Learn from the tragedy of the Israelites who thought they had it all because they had God's blessing, because they had spiritual experiences, because they'd seen the miraculous, and yet they ran in the wrong direction. They ran from God into the arms of idols. Learn from their failures. Learn from the failures of your own past. Look at the anxiety that you fostered when you wouldn't trust the Lord in the uncertain times. Look at how apathy grew in your heart as you neglected God's Word and prayer. Look at the relationships you destroyed by wanting to be served by others rather than wanting to serve. Look at the trouble you got into just because you wanted to fit in with your friends at school, because you wanted the approval of others. Don't assume that all is well just because you've had spiritual experiences and you know God's blessings or you can see them, you can write them down, just because you belong to the church, just because you've been baptized, just because you prayed a prayer, just because you grew up in a Christian home. Don't assume. Heed the warning. Hear the encouragement and run. Run from anything that will keep you from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You will give us ears to hear what You say, that You will give us hearts that heed this warning, that are not proud, that are not presuming, and that we will hear the encouragement that we are not alone, that we all walk this same road together, we all face these same tests together, And that you are with us, ready to strengthen us, ready to give us the way through, no matter the pressure from society or from friends or from family. And we pray you will give us a will to run, to flee from idolatry, anything that would take your place in our lives. Flee from sin and flee in pursuit of our Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing the doxology and then we'll be dismissed.